It's been 57 years since President Lyndon B. Johnson signed into law the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Congress had debated it for years, and President Eisenhower had signed his own Civil Rights Act into law in 1957 in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling in Brown v. Board of Education. In America, we speak constantly about rights. At Americans United for Life, we speak about human rights, the human right to life in particular, as the first and foundational of all human rights. But what are civil rights? Why are they important and where do they come from? And since every claimed right for any one person or group also implies a related responsibility for another person or for a whole society, who fulfills our civil rights? And who plays referee for the disputes over those civil rights that inevitably arise? We speak with a man today who stands at the center of these critical questions. Roger Severino is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where he directs the HHS Accountability Project. Before joining the EPPC, Roger was the director of the Office for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where he led a team of more than 250 responsible for enforcing our nation's civil rights, conscience and religious freedom, and health information privacy laws. We speak with Roger today. I am Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Liberty and Law, brought to you by Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. And we're thrilled to be joined today by Roger Severino. Roger, it's such a pleasure to speak with you. Glad to be on. And of course, we've also got Noah Brandt. Noah, how are you doing? You know, I'm good, Tom. Roger's a rock star. He has, he has experience in everything. That's right. You know, we spoke about civil rights in the introduction, Roger, and you were at the Office for Civil Rights. Uh, let's just start there. Can you tell us a little bit about your work there? What led you there and, and what OCR did? Well, civil rights has been part of my entire career, but it also goes back to my childhood. I'm a son of Colombian immigrants. We really do embody the American dream. Uh, my parents were not very well educated. My mom was an orphan and I grew up in kind of rough circumstances. I ended up going to Harvard Law School, and then after that, I really became interested in civil rights. I was ahead of the Pro-Life and Religious Liberty Club at Harvard, where coincidentally I met my amazing wife, Carrie Severino. And from there, I went to the- A rock star in her own oh, right, yes. Carrie Severino. <laughs> she is amazing, a force to be reckoned with. Um, so from there, I went to Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, making sure we we're protecting our first fundamental freedom, the right of religious exercise, regardless of your faith, tradition, or background. Then DOJ civil rights, mostly under Obama. I was a trial attorney enforcing our civil rights laws as a career official. Then Heritage Foundation for two years, and then the Office for Civil Rights at HHS, which is truly the intersection of all of the issues leading up to this point of life, religious freedom, healthcare. It touches so many lives and civil rights. And it, it was really a culmination of, of uh, so many things I'd worked on for the entirety of my life. It was a privilege and an honor. And I'm afraid that the legacy I helped built is being threatened now by the Biden administration. Yeah, you did such important work there. We're going to talk more about that. I was struck by, you know, something that I had read that you were, I think, one of the longest or maybe the longest serving uh, OCR head in what, something like 30 years, right? Yeah, that's right. Since the 90s. And when I first walked into the office, you see pictures of all the OCR directors and some, some luminaries there, and many of which came from DOJ civil rights, in fact, 
But I did notice that most of them had a span of only two years in office. And it was a tough job under a microscope, heavy scrutiny, but I was able to help revolutionize that office and really put it on the map in a way it had never done before by launching a conscience and religious freedom division, a brand new division to focus on this fundamental right, one of the long neglected civil rights. And I wanted to create at least parity with every other civil right. And that's what I helped institutionalize in the four years I was there. And it took four years to really get it to a good point to, to really make it part of the, the fabric and culture of government, which it was missing in the past. Wow. So, Roger, so you started the religious freedom uh, part of OCR, the Office of Civil Rights. Can you tell us just a little bit more about, like, what in general, you know, all of your staff at OCR was doing? What are these guys protecting? Or what were they doing before you came in? And then how did this new division focusing on religious freedom, uh, what were they focusing on? Before I came, there were two main buckets of enforcement. We were enforcement and regulators. We made the rules and then enforced the rules as well. Broadly speaking, civil rights which is race, sex, national origin, disability, in the context of healthcare and human services, making sure everybody gets an equal shot at, at federally funded services, and also health information privacy, HIPAA, which of course, if you ever enter a doctor's office, you sign the HIPAA forms, which people wonder what this is all about. It tells you your rights as a patient to keep your health information private, especially in the era of massive breaches and hacks is yeah, crucially really important. important stuff. Yes, and that was a, a wonderful opportunity to help ensure people's access to healthcare because they have greater confidence that their information will be protected. So those were the two main buckets that were there before I arrived. We added a third bucket, and that was conscience and religious freedom. We found that there were about two dozen federal laws protecting conscience in healthcare that had been not enforced at all, or if enforced, mm. enforced only rarely. We had about 10 complaints on these conscience laws in the previous eight years under Obama, and we just skyrocketed under Trump because we announced that we were open for business and these laws were finally gonna be enforced. Wow. And we had two major cases that I wanna highlight. One was a nurse being forced to assist in an abortion, and another, the state of California, with Javier Becerra, who was attorney general, Forcing people to buy abortion that, that coverage. That name before, I can't. Yeah, it's in the news right. or something. It's in the news. And <laughs> hope we get to talk about Becerra. Forcing, in one case, nuns to buy abortion coverage for fellow uh -huh. nuns. So we issued notice of violation against the state of California for doing that, costing them $200 million per quarter in Medicaid funds. First time in history, and it's all due to the Conscience Religious Freedom Division. And the University of Vermont Medical Center for forcing a nurse to assist in an abortion against her will, issuing wow. a notice violation and a lawsuit there. And I hope that those two marquee enforcement actions will continue under Biden because it is, in fact, the law. Tom, I'm thankful for Roger, but can you believe that this division focusing on civil rights or the, the rights of conscience and freedom of religion, can you believe that didn't exist in the Office of Civil Rights before four years ago? Well, it's incredible, right? I think it speaks in some sense to our polarization in the culture and on some of these issues. I mean, Roger, it's incredible to me to look back and for folks who weren't following at the time or maybe, you know, it's a little bit quiet right now. It's probably going to pop again soon. The idea of religious sisters, for instance, being compelled to... Uh, be complicit in, you know, moral and public acts that, that, that are just go against their conscience. Why is that an issue, right? And it's like, why is this something that's pressed as, as a political imperative? I mean, religious sisters 
are not getting abortions for a variety of reasons, you know, one of which is that they commit to a celibate life, right? And so what is what is the nature, what is the, the, the reason behind a push like this? I think there's a couple things. One is the rise of secularism that devalues the religious impulse. We've seen this over the last few decades, the rise of the NONEs, the nuns, in terms of self-identification for religious uh, viewpoints. If you have people talking past each other where they don't identify, it's religion versus irreligion, all of a sudden you lose that common ground, that, that common fabric. And we're seeing more of this being put in opposition to each other. Additionally, you have the growth of the administrative state. As Obamacare, for example, grew and took over more and more of healthcare, then the government's view of what is the good, the, the proper conception of healthcare, or even of what it is to be a person and what should be protected, all of a sudden the government starts to crowd out religious institutions, nonprofits from that space as it starts to take over. So you have those two things, secularism, growth of the administrative state leads to something like the contraceptive mandate on the Little Sisters of the Poor, or Javier Becerra imposing abortion insurance on nuns. Unfortunately, President Biden is signaling a retreat from religious liberty and conscience on this era. It's, it's turning into all or nothing when it does not have to be that way. There has to be space for people of religious conviction and moral conviction who just think that human life begins at conception because there's a scientific basis for that belief and they don't want to subsidize the taking of a human life. There has to be space for people of goodwill to be able to say, no, not for me, I'm not going to be forced to participate. Unfortunately, it's turning into an all or nothing where if there's anybody anywhere who disagrees with the prevailing orthodoxy, they must be driven out of the public square, cut off from federal funds, sued or hounded in court. And that's just an incredible shame. Right. And you've got in the space of, you know, what, 60 or 70 years, this bizarre sort of flipping of priorities, right? Whereas... You know, in the 1950s or 1960s, you know, one of the great struggles was getting Congress aligned behind the idea that you needed something like civil rights acts, right? And that you needed to protect particular things that may have been protected in theory by the Constitution, but in practice weren't respected, right? And you go from that 60 years ago within living memory, well within living memory, to today, where it's the same principle driving a sort of a, a totalitarian impulse that says, no, society must be ordered broadly in a particular way, and there can't be exceptions from it. Everything, everyone must be compelled in a certain way, uh, and, and people of conscience can't be protected now if you disagree, if you dissent from, from that reigning orthodoxy. How does that happen? How does a society recognize on the one end, here's something guaranteed in theory but not in practice, to today, uh, the same issue, right? It says, you know, well, if everybody, of course, has liberty, but now it's this perverse sort of, essentially, you have the liberty to be fired, right? It's like if you're a physician or if you're a nurse and you don't want to do an abortion, that's fine. You know, the, right. the response is sort of this flippant, like, learn to code, like, go get another job. <laughs> and it goes contrary to the civil rights impulse. The civil rights movement was to create equality in public interactions, in public space, in voting, in public accommodations, in housing, laws that I enforced at DOJ Civil Rights and at HHS. Included in that is protection against religious discrimination. And we're unfortunately seeing this secularism that says, you know what, you could bring your whole self to work, accept your religious identity. Keep mm -hmm. that within the four walls of a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. Don't bring it into the workplace. Don't bring it into the public sphere. If it has anything, any interaction with government, it must be completely separated 
and uh, not welcome. We don't do that with other people's identifications. We should not do it with religion. We founded at EPPC an HHS accountability project to make sure that HHS in particular, whose mission is the health and well-being of all Americans, and by the way, we added from conception until natural death as part of this strategic mission. To make Amen. Sure, Thank you for that. Yes, we did. To make sure that, that, that HHS is held accountable to that mission, and that includes religious liberty, that includes protecting all vulnerable members of society from conception until natural death, older Americans, and I'm very encouraged that we formed a tremendous coalition between people who are pro-life, people who are pro-disability rights, in the middle of COVID to say that people who are at risk of being thrown overboard would be protected and not devalued because of their quote-unquote worthiness or usefulness. We fought against the utilitarian ethic and won. We changed state after state crisis standards of care. Those are triaging plans to make sure that people would not be cut out from vital healthcare resources because they were seen as less worthy or had a disability. And I want to see that coalition thrive and survive because that is a true understanding of our civil rights. And it's based on the fundamental equality and human dignity of every single person. Right. I thought... I thought it was so key too, right, when some of these initiatives were launched under your leadership because, as you say, you know, once you make it clear that you're sort of willing to listen um, to a whole range of concerns, um, ethical difficulties, challenging, challenging situations, well, of course then you're going to get more outreach, right? Why? Because I think many people simply didn't know that it was possible to uh, lodge some of these complaints, uh, to speak about some of these things. I think many people maybe don't really know intuitively that their conscience is protected, right? That if they are that, that person in a hospital setting uh, or in an employment setting being told by their boss they have to do X, you know, people don't necessarily know that they have a right not to. Um, and so I think it was so key that you came out and made it clear uh, that, you know, in this case, uh, you know, the, uh, the scariest words in English were not, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Finally, you're thinking, this is great news. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it, it was about time. And it's not to say that the violations weren't occurring. They were occurring, but people did not know where to turn. Courts had mm. said that there was not a private right of action under the Weldon Amendment, which is one of the laws that we enforce, or the Church Amendment, which meant that the Office for Civil Rights at HHS would have been the only place for people to go. It was one of the best kept secrets that these, this was one of the laws that Congress had passed and OCR was in charge of it, but it was neglected, left to lie fallow. Uh, there was one enforcement case in in the eight years, but we changed that. We made a huge splash. The president himself announced that we were now taking our, our rights seriously. He had an executive order to that effect, and we started to change the culture of government. We started to institutionalize these practices. The word got out, and then the complaints came. When the complaints came, they were followed by enforcement actions. And now you have this cycle where now states were finally being held accountable for their actions and their violations. Hospitals were being accountable. We were starting to train universities and med schools and students so that people become informed, just like we do with every other civil right. Every government agency has a civil rights office and a civil rights officer to handle EEOC claims and other things, but they don't include one for conscience and religious freedom. Every single federal agency is bound by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So every single federal agency should have somebody responsible for its enforcement to make sure we don't go after the little sisters of the poor ever again. And that's what was missing and that's what we aim to change. And I'm hopeful it will stay in place. We hired 
over a dozen career professionals in the Conscience Religious Freedom Division, which have all sorts of civil service protections that I really hope they don't get targeted by the Biden administration because they're doing fantastic, wonderful work that needs to continue regardless of political affiliation, regardless of who's in the White House, and regardless of who sat in my chair as director of the Office for Civil Rights. It's just too important to turn into a partisan football. Yeah, you know, Roger, I want to talk about the Biden administration where can there be overlaps in the work that you were doing in the Trump administration in OCR with the new Biden administration? Do you think that pretty much everything you did is going to be rolled back and reversed? Uh, we can talk about some specific things, but is is there first is there room for optimism? Do you do you see uh, some of the things you started being continued in a, in a good way? I think so. I'm I'm hopeful that they will leave the Conscience and Religious Freedom Division untouched. That is so vitally important. There's two dozen laws that need to be enforced. And we don't want to be in a position where we're on the wrong side of the Little Sisters of the Poor and the Supreme, the Supreme Court. Supreme Court is very pro-religious liberty. And we launched a division to make sure we're no longer on the wrong side of the law. And that has, has to continue. Another area that I'm very hopeful for is on disability rights. As I mentioned, if we're rooted in the fundamental dignity of every single human being created equally, then we have a space for common ground. President Biden, he touts his Catholic identity. Well, let's see if he puts his money where his mouth is. If you believe in human dignity, then you will you'll protect unborn human life. You will protect life regardless of disability. And this happens in abortion, the high rates of abortion of children with, for example, Down syndrome. Does he stand for protection of unborn life in those circumstances? Does he stand for protection of newly born life? in sometimes very difficult circumstances where you have premature children born with disabilities. We had issued a proposed rule that is still out soliciting comment from the public that says, shall we protect newborn life from disability discrimination? There were cases where parents were begging for doctors to treat their newborn children and the doctors refused. We want to ask the question, is that because the doctor was saying mm. the child was better off dead because of their disability? That would wow. be illegal. I want to make sure, and there's video evidence of this, video of it. And we found, in fact, it was a violation where a hospital did not provide emergency screening to provide treatment of uh, newborn twins. And we issued this NPRM. We want to see the Biden administration make that a reality as a final rule. And we had this incredible coalition of the disability rights community, which applied not just with newborn infants, but older Americans as well at end of life to make sure that they aren't cut off from life-saving care because some doctors think they're better off dead because of their disabilities. That's contrary to our American values and contrary to the law. And I, I am hopeful that the Biden administration will agree. And, you know, I really need to underscore that, Roger, because that phrase, right, that, you know, hey, better off dead, maybe, maybe it sounds too flippant for folks who maybe haven't been following some of these issues. But, you know, you can look over a long history now, even just of the past 20 years as a snapshot. And whether you pick a case like that of Terry Schiavo or a more recent case like a Charlie Gard or an Alfie Evans as just, you know, some of the, the poster, you know, men and women and children of these issues, right? Uh, in the case of, of all three of those, you had folks who were, you know, experiencing disability in one form or another. And it was particularly because of that insidious, you know, uh, quality, uh, quality adjusted life years as one example, as a, as a, as sort of an anti-human metric. Uh, that says, well, because a person has a disability, they're going to live a different sort of life than than maybe somebody who doesn't. And therefore, right, that's where you get into this idea 
um, a dehumanizing idea, quite literally, that, that sort of evaporates their rights, unfortunately, in some courts, uh, both nationally and internationally, uh, where folks just say, well, you know, that maybe we really shouldn't go to so much trouble to protect them or to even give them, you know, basic care, um, you know, in a hospital setting or in a long-term care facility or at a home. Maybe they're not, um, you know, maybe they shouldn't be, you know, given rights that are recognized to emergency treatments or interventions, you know, and in the case of, of you know, someone like a Charlie Gard who was, you know, a toddler, you know, it was even a, a situation internationally, right? Pope Francis had stepped in and said, you know, we can take him from the United Kingdom. If his parents want to send him to Rome, we'll care for him for free in a hospital in Rome. We'll give him the treatment he needs. There was a father in New York, I think it was, who stepped out. His son had the same condition. And he talked about how he was told his son had no chance at life, period, let alone a quality life, uh, that he would die, you know, any day, essentially. And then, you know, his son uh, was there with him. He was like six or eight years old, defied all the expectations. You know, and unfortunately, in the case of, of both Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans, the UK courts, um, you know, basically uh, just disregarded entirely the rights of, of parents to make those decisions for exactly that reason, right? They said, no. These children are better off dead. That's not exactly the language they used, uh, but it was the the practical effect of their ruling. Uh, and so these things these things are happening, and unfortunately, right now, too often, uh, it's a situation where they're happening to patients and families in an isolated way. Uh, folks don't have folks standing alongside them to advocate for them. Uh, there's not a feeling of solidarity yet. So I think this this focus on disability rights, and and hopefully this the a final rule on that that issue is so key, right? We see this, of course, more recently with COVID, don't we? Um, of folks, whether in nursing homes uh, or of certain uh, backgrounds who have been denied even consideration by healthcare experts. They're put in the back of the line because maybe they're too old or maybe they've got a disability. It's just not right. I'll, I'll give you the worst example during my time at OCR. There was a state that once the COVID crisis hit, they dust off their crisis standards of care triage plans. And the plan said that when if they ran out of ventilators, people with, quote, profound mental retardation, end quote, and that's using that, that archaic language, would not receive ventilators. They'd be flatly ineligible. Unbelievable. So imagine if a, a well-functioning adult with Down syndrome uh, would get COVID, and if they ran out of ventilators, sorry, you're not worthy of receiving a ventilator. So we jumped into action and they changed, to their credit, very quickly their plans. And that started a chain of events that we built a movement, I should say, a national movement on this issue. And state after state changed their plans. They eliminated provisions that excluded people uh, that were older and blunt age cutoffs. The National Academy of Medicine worked with us to issue guidelines. And that is now a national standard. I'm so proud of that work. And it was an incredible coalition of pro-life forces, of the disability rights community bringing complaints forward and work, and the states being very cooperative with us in, in changing the culture when it came to allocation of scarce resources. It was a utilitarian ethic that was now replaced with a humanitarian one that actually created space for everybody. There's still rationing. There's still tough questions to be faced. It's not easy. But now there's a, a much greater sense of fairness, justice, and equality rooted in the fundamental principle of equal dignity. So we've seen tremendous strides there. There's still much to be done. We have the Hickson case in Texas, uh, and uh, Tinsley Lewis, I should say, is Texas and Hickson. Those are cases of, of an adult and an infant 
where there's controversy about keeping them alive and one was was removed and died against the wishes of family members. Tinsley Lewis is still alive, just heartbreaking story of a young mm. little girl who's fighting for life. It's been well over a year in the hospital have been trying to, to pull the plug and the courts have prevented it. And she's not in a coma or anything like that, but has a heart condition. Uh, that was a, Those sorts of cases need to be investigated to see if there's disability discrimination going on to make sure that we never have a case where a medical professional says, you're just not worth treating because your quality of life, quote unquote, is too low against the wishes of the patients or the parents. That, that's, that should not be their decision to make. Right. As the degree of one's vulnerability increases, right, that's also when your responsibility to care increases. And, and it's so many of the things that you're describing, Roger, that, that you fought against and that you've done uh, good work in, in, in stopping, uh, take the opposite approach, right? They say the more vulnerable a person or a population is, the fewer rights and, and fewer benefits that we should give them. It's just on its face, it defies common sense, right? Mm. It's like if you walk past somebody on the side of the road changing their tire, they obviously need some help. You should stop and help them. The response would never be, oh, they seem fine. I'm just going to keep driving. That's why people pull over. Uh, and so in the case of, of these medical issues, you know, the folks need care. And as you're describing in the case of a Tinsley Lewis or a Michael Hickson, these are ones in particular where, you know, right now these kind of cases can be dismissed by some, right? Because they do say, well, these folks are in some cases relying upon, you know, various types of extraordinary care. Maybe they do need a ventilator. Maybe they need some form of, of, of machine to help them, maybe to feed them by feeding tube, right? If, you know, they have uh, Alzheimer's, for instance, and require food by tube because one of the effects there is you forget how to swallow at a certain point and you need that assistance. But what you're being given is food or what you're being given is oxygen, right? And if your body can still metabolize, if your body can still benefit from those goods, then it makes sense to give them, right? And, and you know, that being said, though, if you think it's just about machines, right, I think you've got another thing coming. I think people look at that and they say, oh, it's just in case people are hooked up to machines. So it's this thing of, you know, pulling the plug or not. No, there's no limiting principle here, right? I mean, today, for the most part, it's machines, but there's no reason why people who are maybe insulin dependent or dependent on any variety of medication, why the same dehumanizing standard wouldn't be expanded and applied, right? Because those things are costly. So why not just start denying medication? I mean, the principle there is, is, is quite, quite invidious. And interestingly, these hospitals, they never claim that it's a cost-saving measure because it would look horrible. It would look horrible. They usually claim that there's some sort of futility. There is a difference between feudal care, care that actually doesn't work, versus feudal life, a feudal person. And that's the line that needs to be really, very clearly delineated. There is such a thing as care that does not actually work for its intended purpose. And then there is palliative care, etc. Uh, but there, is, there should not be such a thing as a feudal life where somebody says that we're going to give them care that works, that'll keep them alive, that'll uh, maybe in a, in, you know, a, a state that doesn't improve very much, but it keeps them alive. But their life is futile because of their disabilities. And that's based on stereotypes and discrimination, people imposing their judgments as to what life is worthy of living. And that's a judgment that shouldn't be made by medical professionals. Uh, you know, whether or not somebody receives care, there, it's a, a tough, difficult question. We want to make sure that the boundaries of what is lawful are policed very, very vigorously so you don't have invidious discrimination based on stereotypes about quality of life judgments uh, based on living with a disability. I mean, that's why you have such rampant abortion of children with Down syndrome, because people have these fears. 
irrational, unfounded, discriminatory fears of how horrible it would be to live with a particular disability. And a lot of that can be cured just with information, showing both sides of the story, uh, preventing it's, a fear It's really a stigma, people. Roger, right? It's, it's a stigma people have towards those with disabilities. They, 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 they don't understand. They don't get it. Yeah, that's right. And the, the fewer people you see with disabilities, the that's more you right. could otherize and say that there's some, somehow this exception in the matrix that needs to be stamped out, uh, that's unacceptable to have. And it's, it's sad to see fewer, fewer persons with disabilities because of abortion and screening. And we, we lose a part of the human family. A part and, of and that's family. not curing the world of, you know, the disability, right? If, if you're just aborting every child that has it, like that's, that's not a breakthrough in medicine. That's just that, that, that that's a breakthrough in discrimination. That's right. And I was part of an international conference where I raised that exact point. Iceland was proud of curing Down syndrome by having no person with Down syndrome through rampant testing and abortion. That's not a cure in any sense of the word. It's an inversion of a cure. And I want to see that culture change where we take have more solicitude to people with disabilities and treat them as equals, not as something to be cast off or eliminated. It, it's a sad state of affairs when we treat people with disabilities that way. And I'm hopeful and I'm hopeful that the Biden administration will keep that coalition intact and build upon it. And there's still time for people to comment on that NPRM, look online to find the NPRM for infant lives and disabilities. When the public comments, they let their word be known and their voices be heard. And that actually impacts the final product. And someone's really reading them, right, Roger? Someone's really reading You're them. You're <laughs> required by law to read every comment and respond. Wow. When I was a regulator, that's what we did. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, this is this is so important. All of these issues, you know, and again, we have to we have to think imaginatively, uh, as as scary as it is in some of these cases, because, yeah, you know, as as heated as the abortion issue can be, right? You know, that you take that same principle of screening, and you apply it to other situations, and you say. You know, when the day arises when we can screen for things like, uh, you know, say Parkinson's or something more actively, why wouldn't the principle be applied there? You know, that maybe if you've been screened and you have a very high likelihood of developing Parkinson's, maybe then it could become mandatory to provide, you know, quote unquote counseling and guidance uh, for things like, uh, you know, assisted suicide or euthanasia. Um, and it would, again, be promoted for, you know, so-called so humane reasons. Um, so the problems there are, I think, obvious once you say them like that out loud. Um, but just to know that somebody is listening, and that there are people there uh, who are career now, not purely political appointees, that there's fundamental change is so encouraging. I want to shift gears here, Roger. You know, I know uh, th these are some good reasons for hope uh, through a Biden administration. Um, on the other hand, I know you're suing the Biden administration uh, presently. So let's talk about that for a minute. You know, the Biden White House uh, presidential personnel office had asked you to resign uh, from a board um, by early February. Uh, you know, and they said if you refused, I think you would be fired. Right. So what, what is all that about? What's the background? What's happening there? I was appointed by President Trump to be a council member of the Administrative Conference of the United States. It's an independent agency that most haven't heard about, but has a great pedigree. It had Justice Scalia was an early executive director of it. It's think of it as an independent think tank that brings scholars and regulators from government and academia together to come up with ideas for good government with respect to the regulatory process. It's some topics that only an admin law geek would love, 
but critically important for making sure there's transparency <laughs> in rulemaking that the public has input. Like I mentioned, the NPRM, the proposed rule, people have the ability to comment to make sure that regulations that have been passed decades ago are still relevant and how to make sure that they are updated so that, that we get rid of red tape and their, the original goals are implemented. It's purely advisory in that sense. We come together, get ideas together, set an agenda, get some white papers out there, present it to federal agencies and courts, and you could take it or leave it. It has no executive power at all. It was for a three-year term, yet President Biden saw fit in a fit of divis divisiveness or spite and pettiness to try to force me out ahead of the three-year term. President Trump let the Obama appointees run out their full three-year terms. Yet President Biden sought fit to go after me and three others on the council to try to remove us. My question is, what is he afraid of? I'm not in the White House. I'm not advising on national security or making policy. We're generating some reports on regulatory procedures and how to do good government. That's it. What are you afraid of? I'm eminently qualified for the job. I went to Harvard Law School. I was a regulator for four years, DOJ civil rights. That's not the question. What is it about me that he doesn't want? Is it because I had worked on conscience and religious freedom? Is it because I was a, a Trump appointee? Is it because he wants to uh, uh, make a point that if anybody raises a voice contrary to his policy preferences, you're going to put, be pushed out at the first instance? I'm dying to find out what his response is to my lawsuit because Congress made it crystal clear that the appointment was for three years. And even if after the, the ex expiration of three years, if there's not another appointee, I would get to continue. So it's not an expiration date. It's three years, meaning three years. And I'm really interested to see what his response is going to be to justify his vindictive actions. Well, and it's just such a shame too, right? Because it torpedoes good government, the possibility for comedy, the possibility for bipartisanship. We heard so much, especially over the past year of campaigning, um, about the importance of norms, right? And so it seems to me that what you're describing a nonpartisan commission to provide advice on good government, you, you can't, you know, get much more norms based than that. You know, we all should want good government, right? We can disagree about particular policies or the importance or efficacy of particular laws, but, you know, that's a common sense bipartisan thing. So I think it's important that that uh, hopefully play out well um, and we'll be following that issue. Yeah. Thank you, Roger. He, he wants to silence my voice and he's trying to bully me off and I'm not, not one to be bullied. So we'll see what his mm, arguments are in court. And, and I, I definitely do not, as you mentioned, comedy and norms. If the rules of the game are presidents could take away anybody from any independent agency at will, okay, fine, then we'll live under those rules. Those aren't the rules that the President Trump lived under, but it can't be unilateral. It can't be that only Biden gets to go after people uh, in a bullying way. And I wanna, I'm, I'm hopeful to get the clarification, but I think the Supreme Court case law is actually on my side on this one. And the law says three years, and three years means three years. There you go. Yeah, and, and President Trump got a lot of trouble for, uh, you know, dis dis disrupting norms. We'd hear that in the media all the time. And uh, this is an example of President Biden about, you know, two months into his administration, uh, disrupting a norm for, for seemingly just being afraid of hearing alternative solutions. It's petty. I mean, what happened to his promises of unity and healing? If you're trying to silence a voice on questions of good government, that he does not have to take the advice 
but right. he just wants to silence it. And that is not a gesture of unity. It's the opposite. It's further division. You see it with this. You see it with him rolling back Mexico City policy. You see his nomination of Becerra and Dr. Levine to HHS. It's division after division, doubling down on the culture wars. This is not what he promised at inauguration. This is further yeah. inflaming tensions when we should be healing. Let's let's talk about one of President Biden's nominees you just mentioned, uh, the att- current Attorney General of California. Uh, you know, when a president comes into office, I'm the type of guy that thinks in general he should be he or she should be able to nominate the people around him that he wants to help lead. Right? That that he should be able to pick a cabinet that represents his views and can try to accomplish his agenda. But President Biden campaigned as a moderate. You know, he campaigned as a moderate on abortion. He campaigned as a moderate as as the person furthest to the center in his party. And the choice for Secretary of Health and Human Services, HHS, a really important agency, especially in the era of the greatest pandemic we've faced in 100 years, it's a vitally important post. And he nominates someone who I think can best be described as an abortion activist. Roger, what do you think of Xavier Becerra? That's exactly right. He is extreme on the question of abortion and is not qualified to be head of the Department of Health and Human Services. He's not an epidemiologist, he's not a doctor, he's a lawyer, and his interactions with HHS was being found in violation twice by my office for violating federal law protecting conscience. Wow. And, yeah, and in one instance, he was going after pro-life pregnancy resource centers precisely because they were pro-life and he disagreed with their message and he wanted to effectively shut them down and use every tool of the state to go after them. I held them in violation and the Supreme Court in the United States said those actions were actually in violation of the First Amendment of the Constitution. So you have the Supreme Court on one end saying it's likely a violation. You have my finding it's a violation under the Weldon Amendment. And then you had another instance where he went after anybody who did not want to pay for abortion coverage. This included parents who did not want to pay for abortion for their daughters, teenagers and up that were still on their health plans. Or in one case, a complainant was an order of nuns who were required to buy abortion coverage for fellow nuns. This doesn't make any sense. Yet Javier Becerra doubled down on this. He would not back off one inch and we held him in violation of the law and he was slapped with a $200 million disallowance of Medicaid funds per quarter because of his violation. The Wealth Amendment is clear. You cannot receive federal funds while you are discriminating against people who don't pay for or participate in abortions. Unfortunately, President Biden has said he wants to walk away from things like the Hyde Amendment. Will the Wealth Amendment be next? We'll see. But he's retreating from the bipartisan consensus that whatever one thinks about the legality of abortion, you don't force people to pay for it or participate in it. And by nominating Becerra, he's doubling down on this pretty extreme view that abortion is sacrosanct. It is something that needs to be forced on everybody. And it's just contrary to American values and contrary to law. Becerra should not be the, the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Yeah, I think you nailed it. And the saddest thing to me is you say, you know, he's doubling down on abortion extremism. He's also just like President Biden is doubling down on the idea that abortion is just the most important thing in healthcare. Like, you know, look at what's what's going on. I mean, you know, you worked in the government. Is the secretary of HHS, is that just a grandstanding position that doesn't matter? I mean, you would think that these are important policymakers that affect our entire healthcare infrastructure. I think there are two most important positions. One, national defense, 
and a short second is HHS, Health and Human Services. It, it is the largest agency by budget in the United States. It touches more lives than any other agency. Massive programs and the FDA keeps our drugs and food safe and NIH does uh, critical research. We're in the middle of a pandemic. It is more important than ever that we have somebody fully qualified to be head of HHS. Secretary Azar did a fantastic job in the middle of a pandemic. He knew the industry exceedingly well. He was the general counsel of HHS. He worked in pharma for many years. He knew healthcare backwards and forwards. Javier Becerra knows abortion backwards and forwards. Abortion is not healthcare. And mm -hmm. that it's a flashpoint in the uh, uh, American scene in terms of controversy. It's not a point of unity. It's a point of division. And he's pushing this in a time when we should be coalescing around fighting this threat of the coronavirus pandemic instead of being distracted with nothing more than abortion uh, politics over and over again, because that's his main qualification. Yeah, you know, especially, too, in the era when we've heard extremism decried over and over again, you know, and when President Biden, then candidate Biden, you know, defended his his pivot after, you know, nearly a half century on something like the Hyde Amendment, defended it by saying, well, gosh, things have just become so divisive, so extreme. And his response then is, in effect, to say, so I'm going to ratchet it up. You know, they've become so divisive and so extreme. People are disagreeing about abortion policy. Now I'm going to make it worse, you know, by walking away from moderation on the issue, by saying something like taxpayer funding of abortion, I'm no longer a moderate on. And if he's not going to be a moderate on it, what does that make him? Well, it makes him an extremist. The question then is whether you're uh, going to be for something, uh, you know, fundamentally that's good or bad. Uh, and that's where you get into what is the object of the thing you're pursuing and the object of abortion is always and everywhere the intentional ending of human life, right? And then the question then is who's going to be complicit in it? Who's going to be forced to do it? We don't want to see any doctor, any physician make the mistake of thinking that abortion is a medical act or making the mistake of thinking it's necessary. Um, you know, even things like early delivery might be necessary to save the life of a woman, but the intentional Killing of a child in abortion is never medi medically necessary uh, to save anyone's life. And so all of these issues, you know, uh, are instances, every one of them has aspects where we can take a step back and breathe and say, can we lower the temperature on this? Can we figure out a way to have some unity around it? And so certainly on the issue of the Hyde Amendment, President Biden has not been helpful there. It's an issue we're going to continue to follow. I think a, a key question for President Biden, who touts his Catholic identity. Is he in favor of Catholic hospitals being forced under any circumstance to perform an abortion? Yes or no? It's a very simple question. Is he in favor or against it? Does he protect their religious freedom or not? Does he protect their Catholic identity or does he abandon it for a secular uh, ideology that puts abortion above everything else, even conscience and religious freedom and moral conviction? That's, that's the inflection point we're at right now. All the signs so far have been going in the wrong direction with President Biden, with appointing, nominating Becerra, uh, somebody who's going to further inflame. And think about Becerra. He actually sued against our conscience regulation. He didn't have to. Only a handful of states did. Uh, I think it was like three did. But 
he wanted to be leading the charge against conscience and religious freedom, against protecting those hospitals of faith that don't want to participate in abortion, when you could go to an abortion clinic down the road if you want. Just don't force it on institutions of faith to be complicit in it. And I think the large majority of Americans agree with the sentiment that conscience should be protected, that you can't force people to violate their conscience or their faith. Are America's too good for that? And Biden's heading in the wrong direction, unfortunately. It's so true. You know, this is one of those issues, you know, what's where, you know, on the one end, you've got the culture of Roe v. Wade from the beginning, where Roe comes in, nullifies state law on abortion, nullifies the democratic will on abortion uh, in terms of laws that were present in almost every state. And it leads to today where it, it seems like folks want to talk about it constantly. You know, we're, of course, at Americans United for Life, an organization that was founded to oppose what became Roe uh, and to now protect for the rest, you know, to advocate for the restoration of human rights. But it's it's such a, a bizarre situation, right, where we're saying simply for now, like, let's take a step back. Let's have some reasonableness on this. Let's at least let states that don't want to be complicit not be complicit. Uh, and, it's, and essentially the argument there is we don't need to talk about abortion all the time. And the other side says, no, we need to think and talk about it all the time. It needs to be present in every every aspect of health care, every aspect of public law and society. We need to be pushing to expand it, to grow it. We need to push it on other nations through our international policies. We say, which side in American life is so obsessed about abortion? Is it the side that wants it everywhere, that wants everyone to be complicit in it, that wants everyone to fund it, that wants everyone in the world to participate in it in some way or another? Or is it the folks that say they're advocating for the human right to life who say, let's take a step back. Let's return to some normalcy. To me, the answer is obvious, but that's an issue we're going to continue to adjudicate in public life. Roger, uh, as we're heading to a close here, I want to talk a little bit about you know, an administrative state that works for the people. You know, I think, as, as I alluded to earlier in referencing Reagan, right, that the, the scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I think there's an increasing sense uh, on the right that actually government can work for the people. It's just a matter of figuring out how best it can do that. Your career has taken you to a lot of places. You mentioned the Beckett Fund, Heritage Foundation, Office of Civil Rights, and now the Ethics and Public Policy Center. So I'm curious to hear from your perspective over your great career so far, what is your sense of how an administrative state might work for the people? What haven't we been seeing in recent times? Well, I've, I've seen it from the inside, having been a regulator on HIPAA, on conscience, on healthcare and human rights. It is, it is something that conservatives have fought against in terms of the administrative state for very good reason. The administrative state, as large as it is, as intrusive as it is, was not what the founders had in mind as part of our constitutional structure. Yet here we are. And after 60 years of trying to rein in the administrative state unsuccessfully, uh, I'm not one in favor of unilateral disarmament, that the, the mechanisms of the state can only be used for one view, and usually the liberal, secular, humanist uh, view when there's, there's another view that's, that's more in line with the vision of the founders, the respect for human dignity, the respect for religious freedom, and the mechanisms of the state are there for that as well. We have two dozen conscience and religious freedom laws that have not been enforced. So I use the exact same mechanisms of regulations for all other civil rights to apply it to conscience and religious freedom. Nobody had done that before. Why not? 
there's there's not I don't think there's a very good reason to say that only certain laws could get the full enforcement. The laws are there, so we should enforce all of them because they are part and fabric of, the, of all civil rights. It's treating religious freedom as a secondary right that could only be protected by, for, for example, the Supreme Court is wrongheaded. Our mm. laws are there and they're enforced by and large by the administrative state. That's where we are. And I think folks on the conservative side need to make peace with that reality and see that as an opportunity to push very popular law-based policies that respect the fundamental dignity of human life and conscience and religious freedom. I, again, I don't believe in unilateral disarmament. These tools are there to be used and to be implemented to do good, to pursue the common good. And we should use every opportunity we have to uh, further it using all lawful mechanisms available. And that's exactly what I did in my four years. Roger, I, I hear you you might be writing a book on the administrative state. So so you, you, you can just tease us a little bit with, uh, with, with what the conclusions of that book might be. But, you know, you kind of alluded to it, but I think there's a lot of people that would say, we shouldn't be focusing on reforming the administrative state or making it better. We need to focus on abolishing it. And, you know, smart guys like Severino need to stop talking about how to do it better and how to, and, but instead of how to, how to eliminate it, you're, you're, you're focusing your, your mind on the wrong place. There's no way that we can make this giant government leviathan work for the people and, and respect freedom of conscience and liberty. Mm -hmm. I, I've proven that view wrong. You can mm. use the tools available passed by Congress, in fact. There are so many laws out there. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act, for example, was passed nearly unanimously in 1993, signed by President Clinton, and now it's under attack from the left. It needs to be reinforced so that they have the administrative state fully behind it because it's the law, right? Just as we do with every other civil right. Imagine if the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had no follow-up by the administrative state, if there was no DOJ civil rights to enforce it. We'd be living in a very different world today. You need these laws to be enforced through federal agencies. That's the world we live in now. I don't foresee the federal state, uh, the federal government shrinking very much. It's been tried for the last 60 years and it hasn't worked. To the extent it doesn't work, let's use the tools while they're here. So it's not just one-sided. And I'm all for limited government. I think a limited government preserves our freedoms. Until we get there, we could use government to preserve our freedoms. And that's the point. And I hope to mention that as one of the, the main theses of my upcoming book. I'm looking forward to that, Roger. I think you stated the position well, and it's one I think we need to continue to uh, to embrace and to figure out how to operationalize, especially in the years ahead, on both the state and the federal levels in government, because uh, we need to we need to raise our voices. We need to use our voices, and so that's that's what I hear you issuing a clarion call for. Folks on the left are quite good at using the apparatus of the state. When we had our conscience rule, when we had our rule rolling back the definition of redefinition of sex under civil rights laws. We received tons of comments from the left. We received a lot of comments from the right. When it came to meetings, the left was far better organized. When it came to presentations to OMB, the left was far more organized because they're much more comfortable and knowledgeable about the administrative state. Folks that are on the right or conservative, need to be made aware of it. That's why I mentioned the NPRM on infant lives. Comment, comment, comment. Go on regulations.gov, pull down the regulations on infant lives. Let your voice be heard. The, this, the 
agencies have to take those comments into account and respond. And if they respond improperly, guess what? That opens up, opens them up to a potential lawsuit because they're not taking into account the views that are considered and it, it renders it arbitrary and capricious and therefore unlawful. We are ruled so much by the administrative state. People need to be aware of it. And just as people write their member of Congress, they need to write the federal agencies because that's really where the law is being made. Even though that's not how the founders envisioned it, that's where it actually is today. You reminded me of uh, something President Obama said years ago, which has stuck with me, which is something to the effect of, you know, it's not so much a question of whether government is too big or too small, but a question of whether government works. And I think, you know, from the standpoint, whether you think government should be bigger or whether you think it should be smaller, we do want government to work. Uh, we want to be able to govern ourselves. We want to be able to use the mechanisms that exist to improve the common good, uh, to to serve the common good, and to you know promote a uh, good public life for one another. Right? That's what neighborliness is all about. Citizenship is all about, and building a better future is all about. So, Roger, thank you so much for all you've done uh, in those ways through OCR most recently, and we're very much looking forward to your voice at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Tom Noah, thank you very much. My pleasure. Something we do every show, Roger, is our shot of gratitude. We just share something that we're grateful for. We've spoken about a lot of important, a lot of heavy issues. Our shot of gratitude can be serious, but it can also be lighter. So, Roger, I'm curious, what's something you've been grateful for lately? Well, my wife has gone through cancer recently. And praise God, the diagnosis is quite good now. It's been a rough year. Uh, my family has kept strong. And so many people have just been pouring out their prayers to us and it was answered in the way we had hoped that things are, are looking pretty good now so uh, that's what i'm exceedingly grateful for and you know all, all, all glory to god for that thank god that's beautiful roger we'll keep your wife and your family in our prayers too thank you very much really appreciate it noah how about you what's something you're grateful for uh you know here in uh, st louis missouri where i live we got six inches of snow uh over the weekend and as I was sitting in my nice warm house on Saturday, I was so thankful for all the all the guys and gals out there plowing the snow and salting the roads, and making it to where on a uh, on a weekday morning those roads are are drivable, and it's all because uh, people people were were take, taking their time and doing a really good job out in the dangerous weather. So I'm thankful for all the all the emergency workers keeping the roads clean this winter. That's awesome. All right. So yeah, I'm, I'm thankful thankful for everybody putting their. Uh, putting their life in some jeopardy so we all can uh, can be safe on the roads. Tom, how about you? What's something you're grateful for? You know, Noah, as you're describing that, I'm thinking it was a beautiful scene I saw the other day too. You know, there was snow all over the ground. You know, I'd seen this was, this was one of those days where, you know, I was seeing folks uh, out in Chicago with 24, 30 inches, that kind of snow. You know, you're probably not, you know, getting uh, too often in most parts of the country where like the entire car is covered enough. in snow, right? Yep, yep. And, uh, you know, and, and I looked up in the sky, though, where I was, you know, there was a little bit met a foot on the ground and you see up in the sky, those clear blue skies, right? One of those beautiful mm. days, pure white on the ground, but blue skies. Wow. And, uh, you know, kind of, kind of best of both worlds there, right? You got the present reality of winter, uh, with the promise of spring and summer. And, uh, that's, that's the season of, uh, of, of change, Noah. That's beautiful. You, you know, something I think is always true with the snow is on the ground. So in my neighborhood, we have, you know, the street lights. And with the so much snow, the whole neighborhood is just reflective. So now at night, so much brighter, right? Yeah. Yeah, but between the moon and the streetlights, it's like it's daytime out because it's just at reflecting the light upwards. So that's that's another uh, kind of beautiful thing about the snow. That's right. 
All right, again, we're thrilled to speak today with Roger Severino. Check out his great work at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. We'll link to it in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you're listening, rate the show and leave a review. If you have a question or a comment or anything for Roger Severino or for me or for Noah, just email us at life at AUL.org. I am Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.